Hi, I'm Sean McCambridge, Managing Director of Stellar Recruitment. Thanks for joining me on this journey to uncover the secrets of inspirational leaders. The reason I put this together is to share the unique journeys of these successful individuals and really unpack how they've achieved success and hopefully inspire others to do similar things. So thanks for tuning in and listening, and I hope you enjoy the series. Darren, appreciate you joining us on the Inspirational Leaders uh, podcast series. Thanks for getting involved. Thought we might start with just asking the question, who is Darren Greer? Where did it all start? Where are you from? First and foremost, I'm, I'm an engineer. Um, and uh, I always find it interesting when you sit on long-haul flights, for example, and you get into a conversation with the person next to you and they say, um, so what do you do? Um, I've never told them a job title. I think job titles are interesting, um, but they don't define you. How I got there though, out of school, my, my first job, I was uh, an officer in the Navy. Uh, so I joined the Navy when I was 18, um, went to the Naval College, um, and it was excellent. I, and that, that, was a, that was a foundation for me, particularly on the leadership side. Um, then uh, became a mechanical engineer, uh, post the Navy, and, and then got into the oil and gas game, and here I am today. When you graduated, did you have a, an idea or a view of what your career would look like thereafter? No, I've always looked for adventure. The Navy, the engineering side, I've yep. always looked for something where there's where, where there's an adventure. Um, I'm the sort of person who's always wondering what's over the next sand dune yep. and is always wanting to have a look at what's next and what, what other exciting thing you could be doing. So I didn't have, I've never really had a career plan. It's always been finding something that, that was really interesting to do, that a job that was stimulating. And then inside that job and sometimes outside of that job, looking for opportunities. And generally they've been inside. It's, it's you work in companies and there's a project coming, you put your hand up, you, you ask to be involved in that, you come up with an idea to make something better and, and put your hand up to championing it. And that's, and that's how you move ahead. And that's, that's the approach that's basically stepped me through my, my uh, working life so far. Yeah, well, I mean, you're COO of a, a progressive uh, organisation now, ASX Company uh, in Cenex. Um, looking back, you know, what were some of your best career moves and why? You've, you've worked for some other, you know, major players, entrepreneurial organisations, ASX companies like uh, Santos, etc. They're, they're all good at different times. Um, so I think there was a, there was, there's never been a bad one in hindsight. Um, and the bad ones you learn from as well. But I think early in my career working for a um, uh, working for a big company as an engineer was good. You get a technical foundation. Uh, you get involved in big projects um, and get the ability to be responsible for big projects while having a fair safety net around you of experienced people to learn and men mentor you. Um, and that and that that worked really well early. Uh, my best career move was probably the move I did to Easternwell. So more of an entrepreneurial company. Uh, it was the right time in my career for me. I was in my early 30s at the time. Um, I'd worked in the big company side. An opportunity came to, to work for a, for a smaller at the time, a private company. There's a big difference between working for a big corporation to working for a company where you have P&L responsibility, where, where there's people that, are, that you have to pay and you can, you've got visibility to everything. And that is really entrepreneurial. A lot of big companies talk entrepreneurialism, um, 
and they can spell it, but I don't know that they really get it. Some do, some big companies really get it. Um, when you're working for those smaller companies uh, you, you and you work for particularly an entrepreneurial owner or a leader, it's mind-blowing the things that you get to do. And Eastern World was one of those steps. It's hands down the best company I've ever worked for. Um, it had a. It, it's interesting. People talk about um, culture and uh, and and there's a saying that goes along the lines of um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So true. And I never really realised it till I went to Eastern Well. And and I think you really know when you've made it in terms of culture of your organisation when people never talk about culture anymore. Um, and Eastern World was one of those companies. They, it was an extraordinary group of people. We were on a massive growth um, path. The industry we were in was taking off, uh, and it was a really exciting time. So. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of those other characteristics or dynamics within Eastern World? Obviously, a fast-growing company ultimately got purchased by, by Transfield. Yeah. Uh, a lot of growth, a lot of opportunity, great culture. What, what were some of those characteristics that made it so successful? At the end of the day, Companies are lots of things and they own assets, but it's the people. Um, and, and Eastern Well had a really good group of people in the company. And, and when I joined the company, we probably only had 400 people in the company. And we were bought by private equity. Uh, they put us together with a couple of other companies. Uh, and then there was a trade sale um, a, a year later. And ultimately, when I finished with the company, we were we had sixteen hundred people. We had um, we had seventy rigs working across five states. We had our own aircraft. Uh, it was an enormous operation, and but it was the people. It was the for me the leaders directly below me were outstanding. Uh, I had offices and people running different parts of the business, and it was an uh, it was the best group of leaders that I've worked with. And then the people below them, the culture through the whole organisation was was one of, it was a can-do culture, but it was one where people felt accountable, they were empowered, uh, The uh, and we had problems along the way. We always have, have issues along the way, and I think that organisations that can respond to problems and solve those problems and then become better and not repeat them as a successful organisation. Absolutely. When you were hiring for some of those uh, subordinates, um, supporting you in your role, what is it that you were looking for in those individuals? As a, as a young leader, I looked for people in my circle of, uh, of acquaintances and people who knew, so one or two degrees of separation. I think it's changed recently where I now look outside of that. I look in that network as well, but then you look outside for the people that you just have no access to. I think that's really important. Um, and what I look for is a couple of things. In individuals, I look for intelligence. Um, I look for a bit of intuition. Um, I look for people who can see around corners. Yep. Um, I look for people who can work, as te- work together as a team. The whole adage of don't hire brilliant jerks yeah, is yeah. real. They'll just ruin your organisation and yeah. your teamwork. Um, so I look for that, but I also look for a mix of skills. You don't want everyone to be the same. You want diversity in the in the pool that you've got, and that that's diversity in experience. Um, so you want people who are up and coming leaders who aren't constrained by that experience necessarily, but you also want the people who have the grey hair and the experience. So I think you look for a mix and you want people who you can draw on for their different skills. I'm going to shift the focus a little bit from the people that work for or with you, back to you. What do you aspire to be as a leader? You know, What are your core values as a leader? Two parts of that. I mean, as, as a leader, I look to be someone who inspires the people who work for me and someone that people, where people seek me out to be a, a leader of them, people who want to come and work for me. That's what I aspire to. Um, in terms of my values as a leader, um, I mean, first and foremost, um, never lie ever. 
my memory's not good enough to remember things <laughs> that I lie about. So it's just a lot easier to be, to, to be truthful all the time. Yep. I'm a big believer in, um, in understanding risk and risking dollars and not people. Um, we run big operations, oil and gas operations, um, drilling rigs, and I think it's important that when you take risks, it's around the dollars and not the people. And probably the third one is around uh, courage. When you're in charge, take command. I think a lot of people in management positions struggle to make decisions, and I think ultimately decisions elicit more information. Um, so make a decision, uh, monitor the results, and change the courses you need to. That decision-making process or courage to make decisions, has that always come easily for you? I think it has, and it probably just comes back to upbringing and, and experience and good experience and also the people that you've worked for and with and you've seen them. Um, and I think you take pieces from all the different people you've worked for over the years. Um, and I've worked, I worked and been associated with some really good leaders over the years. And I think, but for me, that intuition piece has always come naturally. Uh, you mentioned you've worked for some uh, great uh, leaders over time. Um, is there a particular leader or perhaps just quoting the characteristics of people you've worked with that have helped you sort of shape your career as a, as a leader? There's probably, there's probably two. There's a personal one and a, um, mm-hmm. and a business one. So yep. the personal one is one of my grandfathers. Um, he, was a, um, uh, he was very instrumental in, in my thinking, probably more today than when I was uh, in my early years. Um, so amazing man. Um, was a sailor in the Navy in World War Two. Never talked about it. I only read a book about it uh, when he was probably in his 80s about what his ship did and just some amazing stuff, mind-blowing. But then after the war, started a business, a manufacturing business, grew up from nothing into a large, successful manufacturing business. Very humble, um, someone who who people really wanted to work for, um, but in himself very humble. Um, and when, when we, at the end, at his funeral, um, and he lived a long and productive life, and, and at his funeral, People who'd worked for him, who hadn't seen him for 40 years, turned up at his funeral um, and talked about how he changed their life. So that was um, inspirational. Absolutely. Uh, on the work side, um, there's, a, there's a gentleman that I've worked for for uh, probably half of my working life. Uh, Brett Dahl is the CEO at the moment, the CEO of Quadrant Energy in Perth. Um, he's been a, a mentor of mine and still is to this day. Uh, and he's someone who is a real leader of people. He, um, uh, he brings a team together very well. He communicates really well. He sets um, the direction, then he lets you go and execute. Uh, and he's someone who you can sound ideas off. He's someone who supported me with some of the outlandish and crazy ideas, engineering ideas that I've had over the years, supported me through the good and the bad, uh, but provided good counsel and steering along the way. So, how, how did that dynamic come about? Were you working for him? Did you seek him out? Um, how did that relationship start? Uh, as, a, as a brand new graduate, he was one of the senior engineers working in the, in the company I was with. Um, and I saw him as being someone that I wanted to work for. And I dug into him like a tick. I, stu- I, stuck, I stuck with him uh, and he was an early technical mentor for me. As happens, people in those positions get promoted. And then I basically followed him as he got promoted and uh, in a couple of stints over over probably the next 15 years, worked for him at various times. I stalked him through the oil field, basically, sure. uh, and, uh, and and he's been, yeah, it was an inspirational leader to work for. So as a sort of graduate, he was someone that you gravitated towards Correct. because of the way he went about his work? Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. How have you built your portfolios to enable you to become COO of, of companies like Cenex and, and other companies? I think it's, it ultimately comes down to experience. You can do courses, you can read books, and they're all great. Um, there's no silver bullet, there's no magic book that you read that tells you how to, how to do it. I think you take pieces from everything that you do. 
uh, from books that you read, from courses that you do. Um, as, a, as an 18 year old, doing um, uh, officer training in the Navy was a big step. The, the, it, it taught you a lot of things, firefighting and shooting things and all that sort of stuff, but also the man management piece and, and how to lead generally as a junior officer leading sailors who were, who were often double your age. And that was invaluable in the early days. And the rest of it was was training that came on the job, and, and not formal training. It was it was um, getting out into the field. I think as a as a young leader, um, understanding your craft and getting to know your craft is really important um, in whatever you do, whether that's an engineering discipline. Um, if you are an engineering discipline, getting out to the field, getting that field time is really important from a credibility perspective, but also an understanding perspective. The ability to be able to engage with the people that work with you as a subject matter expert when you need to is I think really important. One bit of advice that I would give to anyone who's in a technical role in particular is get field experience. The, the other stuff will come in time. How have you sort of developed some of those? You, you talk about the technical skills, you talk about the uh, leadership of people and maybe some of the nuances that come with that. How have you developed maybe some of your commercial acumen? You, you mentioned about managing P&Ls yep. and, and managing financial risk and those sorts of things. How have you developed those skills? So in, in an all company scenario, you have um, visibility over spend uh, and production. When you actually work in a, in a smaller company or you work for a private company is when you, that's probably the only time until you get into the sort of the C, CFO, CEO sort of role in a, in, in a public company, for example, where you really have P&L responsibility. And, and for me, that step into Eastern World was that big step, being involved in having to pay suppliers and manage cash and not having just the bank of, of the company to call on whenever you needed it, the, the ability to actually um, know which levers you had to pull to keep your business running and to keep your suppliers supplying you and to pay your people was so. So that step into Eastern World was for me a, a real eye opener into how to actually manage a business and run cash and understand P and Ls. Yeah, fantastic. So it sounds like you know, obviously yeah, you pick up some core uh, skills in, in the early days within the larger corporates, but that step into Eastern World really gave you. First-hand exposure to managing some of those intricacies of cash flow, PL management, managing some of those risks that you may not have got previously Absolutely. in those bigger organisations. Last two years before I took the role I'm in now, I ran a, um, a helicopter, a heliportable drilling operation in Papua New Guinea for a company called High Arctic Energy. Um, if I was ever seeking adventure, I found it there uh, in the highlands <laughs> of Papua New Guinea, and that was another. I mean, that added a whole new dimension to it as well in terms of country risk. Um, when you're working in one country, uh, in Australia, for example, um, you don't often appreciate the nuances of working in another country. So the ability to cash manage in a country um, where you're working in foreign dollars and, and controls around how to get money in and out of the country are important. And also dealing with the workforce. We had 350 local Papua New Guineans manning our rigs. These are big rigs being transported by Chinooks, a big risk profile. Um, and that was an absolute eye-opener. And the ability to to go onto a, a rig site and deal with a workforce largely that when they finished their fly-in, fly-out roster on our rig would go and live in a dirt floor uh, bark hut in a village somewhere in Papua New Guinea and the ability to communicate with them. So I, I think being able to relate to people when you first meet them is very important. And I, my first trip to Papua New Guinea, I made a big effort to learn pigeon, a bit of pigeon before I went there. And, um, and uh, when I turned up on site, I, could, I couldn't talk a lot but I could talk about rugby league, um, yeah, sure. And uh, and and that that was that was that was key. So I could turn up on site. The the, the crews knew I was the I was the new boss, um, but I could talk to them about 
um, a little bit asked questions about their family, and I could tell them that I was a uh, that I was a Maroon supporter, <laughs> which went down really well in Papua New Guinea. So. Yeah, and I'd imagine a uh, good way to build uh, credibility and rapport in uh, a unique environment, and, is, yeah. and probably just uh, get off uh, on the right note. So, uh, but a good experience. It's absolutely. something that, uh, and, and I think that diversity of experience makes you a better leader ultimately. So. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned you pursue adventure. Uh, you work in cyclical markets. Uh, you've risen uh, very quickly um, relative to maybe some of your peers. Uh, talk to us about some of the challenges, mistakes, um, because I think you touched on before, you learn a lot from them. Um, you often do. Uh, not always pleasant or fun, but you do. Can you share anything in that regard? Um, the list of mistakes is long uh, and, uh, and things that have gone wrong along it, particularly technical. So there's, there's, there's two aspects. I think, I think the technical side is, is one, you, you, along the road you make mistakes. And I think if you, if you understood what those mistakes could have been, you outline the risk to people that you were working for and then you have a solution to go and fix it. Um, I think that's um, that's important. I won't pick out one in particular sure. mistake that I've yeah. made because yeah. like the list is long. <laughs> um, I think resilience is very important as well. I think there's a, there's a Winston Churchill quote that says something along the lines that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And I think that's very important. Uh, it's your ability to, to, to react and then come up with a plan to, to, to fix that problem uh, for at, a, at a technical or operational level is important. On the people side, that's that's where it gets a lot more difficult. And as I've moved up, I've gone from being in a role where I solve technical problems to one where I use people uh, and work with people to, for them to solve other technical problems. It becomes bigger than what I can manage myself. I've made probably more, more mistakes with people than I have yeah. on, to, on the technical side. And that's an ongoing challenge. Um, and that's something that I learn more about each day. And, and, and I think being open and honest and giving good feedback to people um, when you work in a big company, corporate corporate sort of environment, the performance appraisals are, is is something as a manager that's necessary evil. One thing I think is a real tragedy is if you turn up at a performance session, a management session with someone, and you tell them something that they didn't know about their performance before you turned up, um, you failed as a leader. I yes. think that continual that the formal session that you do with someone is is essential yep. to document what 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 you've what you've done and what you've agreed whether that's good or bad, but they should know everything you're going to say before you get there. Hundred percent. Yeah, that uh, feedback loop should be continuous, right? Absolutely. There should be no surprise in those reviews. So, so it's good. How have you just taken that a little bit further? How have you shaped some of those leadership skills in terms of you know the people management component? Because you know you could argue that the technical side of it's linear. You know, but uh, people aren't linear. Oh, there's no. lots of variables there. How have you gone about shaping some of those skills? Uh, I think a lot of it comes from experience. I can't say there's a course or anything that I've done there. I mean, you read books about the way people think and psychology, and typically that works for a little bit of it. But it comes down to experience, and and good judgment comes from bad experience, which came from your bad judgment originally. So it, it comes with time. I think I make better decisions now than I did. Um, I did I did years ago, and that comes from. But also working for people that were particularly strong in that in that sense as well. And I've worked for some. I've worked. I've had people working for me who were were outstanding people managers as well. And I learned a lot as much as I did as much as I've worked, learned from mentors and people I've worked sure. for. I've learned a lot from the people who worked for me as well. So it sounds like you've always been a bit of an observer of those around you doing a good job and maybe trying to crystallise what's working well for them and, and maybe bring that to your own sort of approach as a leader. Absolutely. Yep. Talking about uh, intuition, uh, how much of a role has intuition played in, in your journey as a leader? I think it's a big part of, 
of being able to make decisions. And I think there's probably two parts around people. I mean, if I'm interviewing someone, I've usually decided in the first five minutes whether that person's fit for the job and and probably got a 90% hit rate in doing that. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so that's worked well for me over the years. Um, the, the second one is, is around making decisions. I think once you've, you never have all the information to make a decision. I think once you've got enough information to to say oh, there's a 50% chance of success here, go with your gut. And that's worked well for me in the past. Um, and yeah, you make, sometimes that decision's not the right decision. You just gotta be ready to change course if it's not the right decision. Yeah, no, fantastic. I think uh, the, the other uh, view on that is paralysis by analysis. Absolutely. You know, you know making, not making decisions I think can be problematic. You know, so I've heard that uh, philosophy, as long as I get to 51%, I'm happy, I'll yeah. make the decision. So sounds like you've uh, always been a believer in your intuition and, and drawing on some of those experiences to make those key decisions. Uh, I want to take uh, maybe a bit more of a personal route now towards uh, any practices or rituals or approaches you take to get the most out of every day or you know your role uh, as a leader or generally just performing as a C-level uh, executive. So I'm an early bird, so sure. the day starts, and I've had been running drilling operations and and uh, and operations rig operations for twenty years now. So the day starts early, and it's usually me having a look at the, the operations reports that are coming in. Most of these operations run three hundred sixty-five days a year, twenty-four hours a day, um, and you know nothing's bad. Really bad's happened because you would have had a phone call. Well, I feel like I've been on the call for 20 years, um, which is probably true if you ask my wife. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in the morning, I read quickly read the operational reports. Once upon a time, it was in detail. Now I'm looking for high level. But when I get to the office each morning, probably the first thing I do before I go around and talk to the people who are involved in the operations and, and before the day starts, they usually start early as well. Um, we talk about what's gone well, what hasn't gone well, just informally. It often sets the path for the rest of the day and what has to happen. But one of the things that works well for me is each morning I write down three to five things that I'm going to achieve for the day. Yep. And uh, and if I do nothing else, I achieve those. It means that at the end of the week or the end of the month, you're not looking back and saying, where did that month go? So really sort of just focusing or doubling down on, on what the priorities are, because I think Absolutely. we're all guilty from time to time sort of focus on some of the urgent stuff, but it doesn't mean it's important or, or a priority to the business. Absolutely. And, if, and I think if you write down those five things, and, and some days there might be three, um, things that you want to get achieved for that day, and often it's very targeted um, of, of I want to get this done for the day, a little piece of work. You look back when in the five minutes between something and you uh, and you look and go, I'll finish that off, and at the end of the day you look back and it's done, you tick it off. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good. I want to sort of pick up on the back of that question as well. Obviously, you've been successful in your career, but you're also a family man. Uh, how, how have you gone about trying to create some form of harmony or, or sort of balance in your life? You're ambitious, you're driven, but you've got two young kids as well. So yeah. um, how, how, do you, how do you manage that? Um, so there, there's no downtime. <laughs> kids just keep you busy all the time. And I do have a young family, uh, and, and, and it's important that and, and in terms of success, being successful with your family is, is is a is a huge part of being successful in life, and having having hobbies outside of work, doing things outside of work is important. And sometimes that doesn't work because things are really busy. You're on a project. You're doing something which which in, engulfs all of your time. But I think in general, if you if you have if you do things interesting outside of work, it makes you a better person. And I play the guitar. 
poorly um, but I play the guitar. <laughs> yeah. um, I dabble with, with, with woodworking and making bits of projects and that works well with the kids as well. And okay. Some of those have been spectacularly successful and sit in our house and use them <laughs> and other, than we'll, other pieces will uh, make awesome firewood next to the other fire. <laughs> no, that's good. It's good that uh, you're mindful or conscious of... Uh, a, probably switching off from work and having some interest outside of just uh, work alone. I think sometimes we can become a bit addicted to what we do in our day jobs, uh, but also those uh, some of those things you can enjoy with your kids and family as well, right? Absolutely. Just again, building on, you, you mentioned the word success there before. Uh, how, how do you personally define success? What does that look like? Yeah, lots of things make up success, um, and that's that's. And that's family and all that sort of thing as well. But I think ultimately, sort of philosophically, having a purpose in what you do, in what you do, and then accomplishing something for me, that's the definition of success. And and ultimately, helping the people around you to, to lead better lives and to become better. And whether that's your family, um, improving the life of your family, improving the life of the people who work for you, and then if you if you can really get there to improving the improving the lot for the for the community improving the lives of people in the community around you whether that's the local community or whether that's the people of the world that's that's real success your personal purpose is exactly that encapsulating that that's sort of what drives you it or does. gets yeah. you out of bed in the morning and, and, and that's sort of what, where you do it all I mean, ultimately what really drives me and i am an engineer it's, <laughs> it's solving problems sure. it's um getting uh, getting a problem that's that looks insurmountable and too big to solve it's breaking it down into into component pieces, pulling a team together, bringing the people and the technology together to to solve those individual individual processes that or individual problems that make up the bigger problem, and then achieving something that people thought couldn't be done. Now it uh, sounds like you like the pursuit of challenges and, and and finding solutions to that. I mean, just sort of taking that a step further. How do you challenge yourself personally to get outside your comfort zone? Because there's always a choice. I think you know you can stay in your comfort zone, or you can stretch yourself. It sounds like you stretch yourself uh, a bunch of times. Any tips for, for, for I guess pushing outside your comfort zone and, and, and growing as a leader? Uh, I think when challenges come up, you put your hand up and say, "I'll I'll ch- I'll take that challenge on." Um, I once worked for someone who said to me that it was the it was the project that we were working on at the time. He said it was the it was the first time in his working life he'd actually come across an engineering problem that he thought we mightn't be able to solve this. Um, and I looked back and said, "Wow, I, that happens every two weeks." <laughs> and and I think taking on taking on problems and saying yes, we'll do this, and then working out a solution uh, that has that served me very well. I think if you if you stay inside that comfort zone and only take on problems where you know the answer already, um, it's a very boring life. I think taking a taking on issues that are that people don't have a solution for that at the onset you don't know what the solution is, but having the conviction, the courage, your own conviction to say, "I'll oh, come up with a solution for this," and then coming up with a solution that's that's that that's that's what you want to do. It sounds like that mindset, uh, personal mindset of yours is, you know, no, no challenge is sort of insurmountable. We'll, we'll find a way. That's right. And you're sort of almost intrigued by trying to nut out the best way forward to sort of crack that uh, that problem that you face with, as opposed to it's a catastrophe, uh, catastrophe it's, a, it's a problem, how are we going to get over it? You sort of see it, I can see in your face now, you're sort of almost enthused by the challenge to try to crack that. It is, and, and <laughs> I think it, when you look at all these things, you've always got to have a look back and look back at what went well and learn from it. But I think when you're in the moment, you 
you have to focus on not what just happened, you focus on how you move the ball forward yes. and, and how you can resolve the issue, whatever issue that is, whether it's a people issue or, or whether it's a technical issue or an operational issue. I think the immediate focus and the focus of the team around you as well is to, is to keep them focused on what's the next step to improve this and make this better. We'll look back at the end and we'll learn from it, but right now, let's focus on how we move that ball forward. Mm. You're not, uh, uh, you're, you're, well, rather, you're, you're a young COO um, relative to, to a lot of your peers in the industry. Uh, looking back to, to that graduate, um, you know, the mechanical engineering graduate, what would you tell that 21-year-old, you know, knowing what you know now? There's, there's probably two bits of advice that I got when I was a young engineer, yeah. one when I was 21 and one a bit older. Yeah. Um, and uh, the first one that I'd, and I'd probably give that advice again if I was giving it to myself. Um, the, the first bit of advice uh, which I did, which I ignored, and but I would give it to myself again today. Uh, is is don't be in a hurry all the time, and I've been guilty of that. I've, I'm always in a hurry. I'm always looking at what 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 I could do next. What, why is being in a hurry a bad thing? It's not always a bad thing. Sure, I think I think often it is good, and yep. that that and I've got to where I've got to by being in a hurry. Yep. I think sometimes it, it, you could you can take stock. Consolidate a little bit as opposed to um, as opposed to being in a hurry, and that's probably more to do with the, sort of the personal and the balance thing. Yeah. You can go you can go years and have run at a frenetic pace for years, and you can burn out. And uh, I've, I've pulled myself up before I've done that, but um, I've watched people around me do that and, and burn out. And I think it's very important not to be in a hurry all the time. Yep. So that's probably the first bit yep. of advice, and the second bit of advice that I did take. Um, and was to be good at what you just find something that you like doing and become very good at it. Um, so become an expert, per se, in, in what you do. And it was a, a, an old engineer um, who was a mentor of one of my mentors. And I had a, a, the good fortune of meeting him in the US many years ago. And uh, he and I over dinner discussed um, a whole range of things. And, and he said, don't be in a hurry to be a manager. He said, become really good at being an engineer before you become a manager. And I took the advice and decided that I wanted to become an expert in, in the field that I was in. And it served me very well throughout the years. I think it's very easy to jump into middle management very quickly as a generalist. Um, but I think if you become an expert in your field, of, you know, in, in your craft and what you do, no matter what that is, it serves you well f- for, for your entire working life. Yeah, great, uh, great approach, great answer. You've really focused on becoming a technical expert. You've then become the observer or recipient of other people around you teaching or showing you how to become a, a great leader. Has there been any books or anything else like that that you've sort of read that sort of stick in your mind that have uh, shaped your career as a, as a leader? I come from a family of voracious readers. Um, <laughs> and uh, th- th- there's a couple that have been interesting over the years. There's probably, there's probably two... Uh, one that I've read more recently and, and one that sits on the shelf that I pull out occasionally when I'm looking for some inspiration. The early one is a book called Built to Last. Yep. Um, I think it's Jim Collins was, yep. was, was the author. It's a, it's a book that dates back 25 years plus. It talks about Enron and it talks about um, companies like companies that don't exist anymore, but it talks about culture. It talks about uh, vision statements and what what companies with vision really have and what they do and how they perform and how their leaders perform. That one is almost a reference textbook. Um, so that, that that book has been very useful. There's another book, and I can't remember the author, but it's called Skunk Works. It's a book about the Lockheed Martin mm. division that built um, the SR-71 Blackbird, that built the stealth fighters, stealth bomber. 
that is, uh, as an engineer, as a technical person, <laughs> that is an inspirational read just about thought process and about um, solving problems, technical problems that seem insurmountable, but also management problems. It weaves in um, defence contracting and it weaves in a whole bunch of other aspects into that. And that, that book's a brilliant read. Yeah, I think uh, I remember reading about that in a book called Bold, I believe. Um, so yeah, some great philosophies. And I think the way that that, uh, that team of engineers sort of fragmented off away from the broader group, I think the, the learning I took from that is you can't adopt current trains of thought to solve new problems. Absolutely. Is there any other tips or tricks you'd pass on to listeners? You've, you've uh, provided a lot of takeaways today. Is there anything else you'd sort of impart with the listeners in terms of you know, things that might have been uh, pivotal to your success that we haven't touched on already? Look, I think just picking bits and pieces that I've said, to, that I've said in, in our talk today, um, I think um, getting experience, uh, getting field experience, if you're, in, in no matter what you do, whether get, getting, getting some frontline experience is invaluable, ultimately you end up in a, in a leadership or a management position where you lead other people in those roles. To, un- to really understand what they're going through, you have to have walked in their shoes. And in my what, in my job, it didn't mean I had to be a, a roughneck on a rig floor, but it meant I spent a lot of time on the rig floor and I spent a lot of time on, on, on drilling rigs early in my career. Get the experience early. Um, there's never an easier time to get it than when, you're, than, than when you're at an early point in your career. The more responsibility you take on and the, and the more pressures that you have um, in your own job, in your own job role, the harder it is to get that experience. So get that experience early. And then pick out people who are in your business who you see as people you can learn from who can be inspirational, can be mentors, and uh, and attach you to, attach yourself from them and learn from them. Yeah, fantastic. Great answers there. Uh, last question before we sort of round up. We talked about your vision maybe as a graduate, and it seems like you have broader ambition, but you certainly didn't have a clear definition of, of where your career would go from that point. You were pursuing challenges and opportunities perhaps. At this juncture of your, your career, obviously you've got a way to go. You've achieved a lot. Where do you see your career going from this point? Where do you want it to go? What's your vision? I have still haven't quite decided what I do, what I want to do when I grow up yet. Um, so, uh, there's still time. So there's still there's still plenty of time. Yeah. And um, and look, I chose the role that I'm in now. It was a role that I anticipated was going to be available, and I hunted the role. Sure. Um, and so they didn't come looking for me. I hunted them. And and it was to get a skill set that that I wanted to, to round me out. Yeah. Um, and what comes next, we'll have to see. I mean. Starters, I'm only new in the role that I'm in, yes. so, so there's, there's a bit of ground to go there as well. But, 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 uh, but, but ultimately, whether that is uh, as a as a, as a CEO of, of, a, of a company similar to the one that I'm in, or whether that is um, starting up something of my own, I mean, deep inside me is still the there's um, still a, a yearning to, uh, to to build something myself and grow it myself. I haven't given up on that yearning yet, and we'll see how the next couple of years play out. Darren, appreciate your time. Uh, fantastic you to share your journey. A lot of takeaways there. I'm, I'm appreciative of your time. You're a busy guy. So thanks for sharing uh, what you have today and all the best for what comes next. No problem. Thanks, Sean. Thank you.